Well, we have made it. We are at the end of our series going through First Thessalonians. And, and there's a part of me that's, that's a little bit sad. I've loved getting to walk through this book as we mark it up. And I hope throughout this entire time, it's been beneficial to you to see what God has said so that we can know what God is saying to us now. I hope that it's been beneficial for you in your life groups. I hope that it's been beneficial for us to get to see and learn from this church that existed so long ago. And it all started eight-ish weeks ago when we picked up chapter one and we read chapter one, verse seven, which says this, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So this church was an example. They were an influence on all of those Christians around them. People were following Jesus because of them. People were following Jesus more and more because of them. They were an influential church. And so we ask the question, we want to be like that. Not to make Calvary's name great, but because God's name is so great, we want to have an influence on others to help them follow Jesus and help them follow Jesus more and more. So we said, how can we be a church like that? And here's the thing, it's so different than what we might expect an influential church to be like. If you walk through Christian leadership sections in bookstores, if such a thing exists, uh, you would see books on creating programs or having a dynamic social media presence or maximizing your potential. And none of those things are necessarily bad, but they miss the simplicity, yet the difficulty of what it is that was influential about this church. It was their lives. It was how they were living for Jesus. It was the Christian life being lived in them that was having such an impact on those around them. We read in chapter one that their lives were defined, they were identified by this work of faith, this labor of love, this steadfastness of hope. Their lives were defined by faith, hope, and love throughout, and that had an impact on other people. So we ask, how can we have a life like that? What's unique about it is you can't really just try really, really hard to have more hope. It's one of those things, the more you try at it, the less that you have it. And so with hope, with faith, with love, you really need to have a source and a model. So where does it come from and how do we do it? And we saw both of those in chapter 2. The source, the entire reason why they were able to live this life the way that they were, the entire reason why they were able to have an impact on others is because they believed and received the gospel. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, they had hope. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, they have, uh, they have life, love in their lives. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, they had faith in their lives. But they didn't have to try to figure out how do we live in this way on their own. They had a model provided for them. Paul, Silas, and Timothy lived in such a way around them that impacted them. And by following that example, proving that they had received the gospel, proving that they had seen what Jesus has done, they lived in such a way that it impacted those around them. We might think, like, that sounds great. And, and in the easy times, when things are going well in my life, yes, it's, it's so much easier for me to live in such a way. But what is unique about this church, and ultimately one of the greatest reasons why they had such an impact, is that they were living this way even in the midst of extreme difficulty. 
No matter what was going on around them, they were living the life that Jesus had called them to. We read in chapter 3 that they were destined to suffer, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy were destined to suffer. As all Christians in all times, anyone following after Jesus, there will be suffering for doing so. The Christian life is not the easy life, but it is the best life. And we saw that they were continuing to follow after him even there. But the thing about the Christian life is that it's not one that's ever complete. We don't ever get done. We've never like get to a point like, yes, I'm a perfect Christian now. At least not this side of Jesus bringing us to him. And so there's always more that we can grow in. As you read through chapters 4 and 5, you continue to see grow more and more. This idea that they are to continue growing in this. So they're doing so much that's well, but there's places where they can grow. And so we get to a second kind of thesis statement at the end of chapter 3, which says this in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love, so they can grow in love, for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness and grow in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so we spent time over the last few weeks to see these areas that they could grow in. We saw one specific example in chapter four of a place where they can grow in holiness out of love for one another. And we spent time last week seeing how they can continue to grow in understanding, to continue in this life that Jesus called them to, even to the point when Jesus comes back. And we walked away with a statement that there's hope for those who are dead and those who are alive at the coming of Jesus, so encourage one another. And that is a really fast and inappropriately short uh, summary of what we've done so far. You guys all still with me? Because this week we get to another aspect. How can they continue to grow? And we will see how are they to fill their time until either death or Jesus comes, whichever comes first. And this is important because we aren't the best at filling our times as, as people. I think at least in, in my calendar, I have meetings that bump up to meetings, which bump up to meetings. And if there's one little bit that changes in there, I'm perpetually late all day long. And I hate that. And there's always this aspect of, oh, I could add one more. I could do one more thing. I can do uh, one more meeting or one more practice or whatever it might be. There's always one more thing that I could do to fill my time with. Where every, faithfully, every Sunday morning at nine o'clock, my phone shames me into how much I've been filling my time with it this past week. Oh, your usage went up 439% this past week. I get it. You don't need to tell me every week. We aren't great at filling our time. And so I'm grateful for a passage like this that tells us how we are to do so. How are we to continue to grow? How are we to continue to live until either death or Jesus comes? And what it will tell us to do is how do we continue to be that church of influence? It's continue to be the church. It's continue to invest in the community. It's continue to build the relationships that are found there. Because that's what a community is. That's what the church is. It's a gathering of people in relationship. It's why we put it in our mission statement. We want to be Christ-centered communities of people, people who are in relationships. So how to be a church of influence until Jesus comes or death comes? We build into those relationships. And in our passage, we'll see that we can continue to grow in how we relate to leaders, how we relate to each other, and how we relate to God. Did you get that? So how do we fill our time? We continue to be the church. 
And to do that, we build into these relationships, how we relate to leaders, how we relate to each other, and how we relate to God. So we'll pick it up with how we relate to leaders in chapter 5, verse 12, which says this, We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So a couple things to point out here. We have how leaders are to relate to the people and how we are to relate to leaders. But as you're reading through that, you might notice the word leader doesn't show up. I mean, I've said it like 12 times, but the passage doesn't. It also doesn't say typical positions that we normally see. There's nothing about elders. There's nothing about ministers, nothing like that. So what is it that it's focusing on? If it's not naming the leaders, if it's not giving positions, what is the focus? The focus is the work. The focus is what leaders are supposed to be doing. Look look at the passage again and and, uh, follow along with me. So it's to respect those who labor, in verse 12, so underline labor among you, who are over you, underline that, and uh, in the Lord, and admonish you, underline admonish. So there's three types of work that's being done here amongst the leaders. It's not about the position. The focus is on the work that's being done. So leaders in the church are supposed to uh, labor. This is the hard work that is to be done of seeking the good of all people in the church. It is labor. It is toil. It is hard work to do so. And someone in leadership must be committed to that hard work. Well, what does that look like? It's hard work to be over you. And now I want to give a bit of a caution. Our power structure ears might hear this as someone who has a position of authority over someone else. Or uh, we might even go negative where someone is domineering over someone else. That's not what this over you means. It's not someone standing above another person. Think of it more as someone covering another person. So over you in a guardian type sense, over you in a protection type sense. So this isn't someone seeking to gain more and more power. It's seeking to give more and more care to other people. It it isn't someone seeking to have more and more authority. It is seeking to give more and more guidance to other people over you in a guardian sense, not in a domineering sense. So leaders are to work hard to care and guide for the people. And we get to admonish, to help spur each other on to follow Jesus more and more. Here's a summary statement. Leaders in the church are to diligently work to care and guide the people. That is what leaders are to do. And so here is where I will need your help. I need you to hold me accountable to this. If my life in in my interactions with anyone is not defined by care and guidance, if I'm not diligently working to seek the good of all people, then we have a problem. I think God has called me to this position, but if I'm not leading in a way that God calls leaders to live, we have to question that, right? And so I need help to be held accountable to this in all things diligently working to care and guide others. So please, Continue to hold me accountable to that. So we see how leaders react, re- relate to people, but there's also in this passage how people are to relate to leaders. And this is verse 13. So this, uh, to respect those who do this and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Circle because of their work. And this phrase is so important. Uh, 
again, it doesn't say anything about positions. There's, there's no ministers, there's no elders that are being mentioned here. It is people are in leadership and we respect and esteem them and love them because of their work. So this means it's not a blanket statement to just follow blindly anyone who's in a leadership position. This means that we don't overlook abuses of power or people from people who are in leadership. This means that we, don't, we just don't uh, lift people up because of their giftedness or because of their status in life. No, we only, uh, we are called to respect and love them because of their work. And that work is what I just described, diligently working to care and guide for people. So if we do not see that work in their life, then they aren't a leader. And they shouldn't be held to that, uh, they shouldn't be held in any sort of esteem because they, they aren't doing the role that God has called them to. But if people are doing that work, if they are diligently working to care and guide people, then what our reaction to them is to love and respect them. Not because anything is spectacular in them, but because God is working through them and we are so, so blessed that they are willing to let God work through them. So this means that we esteem and love Dakota for pointing our kids to Jesus. This means that we esteem and and love uh, Justin for helping us exalt God every single week. We esteem and we love uh, Denise for helping every student who comes here feel loved and cared for. We esteem and we love Matthew for helping us find places where we are known and where we can know others. We esteem and we love Angie for actually letting us do and be able to do the things that we want to do as a church. We esteem and we love Gary for so many reasons, for helping us have this place where we get to worship our good God. We esteem and we love Tom for the constancy of his leadership over all of Calvary. But what is most important about this passage, it says nothing about a position. And I know I've said that a lot, but it's really important. Leaders are not just those who are on staff here. One of the things that we are very excited about is there are actually more leaders not on staff than those who are on. So this means anyone who is doing that work Anyone who, through whom God is working, they are diligently working to care and guide others, we esteem and we love them. People on our, on our uh, connection team who greeted you on the way in, who when you're here for the first time help you know who we are, we esteem and we love them. Part of our worship team that's up here, people who are right now in rooms uh, pointing kids to Jesus, In all places where there are leaders, we esteem and we love them, not because of what is is spectacular about them, but because God is doing a spectacular work through them. And so what are we supposed to do to fill our time? We be the church. And in the church, we continue to build how we relate to leaders. Another way that we do that, another relationship that we build on is how we relate to each other. And we pick up this idea in verse Uh, We'll finish out verse 13 with it. It says this. It says, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and for everyone. It's really important to point out, we were talking about leaders before, and it's natural to think, oh, so leaders are the ones who are doing this work, right? 
But that's not the case. This work of, of uh, admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with all of them, seeing no one repays evil for evil, that isn't just the job of leaders to do. That is for the whole church. And how do we know that? How do we know that all, every person in the church is supposed to care for every person in the church? How do we know that? Give you a hint. It's in the passage. Give you another hint. It has like a little yellow part that I wrote coming out of it. It's addressed to the brothers and the sisters. Brothers is used 19 times throughout this letter, uh, five times in just this section that we'll be reading here. We talked a few weeks ago about uh, how brothers doesn't just mean the men that are in the church, but uh, just as other languages use masculine plurals to speak the whole, that's what's happening here. So brothers and sisters is, is the most full way of reading what is written in the Bible. You might even have footnotes that say the same. So it is addressed to brothers and sisters. Another way to say that is addressed to the people who make up the church. Those are the ones who are doing this work here. In other words, the church needs the church to be the church. A lot of repetition there, but let me explain what I mean. So the church, that is the gathering of people, needs the church, that is the people who make up that gathering, to be the church, to do what God is calling us to do. It takes all of us to do all of this work. Every person, the brother and the sisters, are called to doing this work to care and build relationships with each other. Because there are people who are in our gathering. There are people who are following after Jesus who need to be reminded that there are no passengers here, that no one is a spectator, that all of us are called to work and care and support for the church that God has placed us in. In other words, we admonish the idol. There are some around us who uh, are overwhelmed by either what's going on in their lives or just overwhelmed by what's going on in this world around us. So we need to come alongside of them and support them. In other words, we encourage the faint-hearted. And there are all of us who need help from time to times. And so we need our church family to help support us inside of that. And so we help the weak. And there are some of us who in here, when we are hurt in the church, and we most likely will be hurt in the church, our reaction is to respond with hurt in return. But we need to come alongside people and make sure that no one repays evil with evil. The church needs the church to be the church. All of us are doing this work to care for all of us. And the reason is to be that church, to be that community, we recognize community only happens on a level plane when it's a level plane field for everyone. There are people who need to be lifted up because of what's going on around them. They could be the weak, the faint-hearted, or the idle, and we need to lift them up to be on that level playing field. There's a temptation in us to push people down, especially when we're hurt, but we don't repay evil for evil. And so all of us put in this work to make sure that we're on a level playing field, because only then can community happen. Only then can we be the people that God is calling us to. With us building into the relationships with each other, that is when we're filling our time well as God is calling us to do. And it's hard. It's hard to do this. I fully recognize it. If you look around the room, and please don't do it because you'll be outed on this. Uh, if, if you were to look around the room, you would see people that you would never in a million years choose. They wouldn't be part of your group. They wouldn't be part of your team. Like they're, they're so different from you. And yet what is more powerful than that is the bond that unites us all, is that Jesus had no reason to choose us, and yet he did. 
And so that is the motivation to be at peace with, with everyone. That is the motivation to do this hard work that all of us is called to do. That is the motivation to do the work of building into the relationships with all, filling our time with that until the day Jesus or death comes. How do we continue to be a church of influence? What are we supposed to fill our time with? It's being the church. And the church is a place where we build relationships and continue to build them more and more with leaders, with each other. And now we get to the last one, with God. And as you read through these last couple of verses, I, I think there's three kind of sections that tell us how we can continue to grow in relating to God. Uh, the first one is focusing on Him, which is verses uh, 16 through 18. Then we have uh, learning from him, which is verses 19 to 22. And then finally, praying to him, verses 23 to 25. So we'll start with focusing on him. We continue to grow in relating to God by focusing on him. Let me read verses 16 through 18. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So a couple things to point out here. The church is called to focus and grow more and more in relating to God. How do we focus on him? Verse 16, we rejoice, so underline rejoice. 17, pray, underline that. 16, give thanks, and you can underline that as well. That is what we're called to do. But it also tells us when we are to do these things. Look back at 16. Circle always. 17, circle without ceasing. And 18 is more difficult because it's split between lines, but do your best to circle in all circumstances. There isn't an ending to any of these. Always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. Do you see kind of the parallelism between those three? Do you see how these kind of mean the same things? This means in every single moment of our life, we are seeking to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. And the reason for this is God is always at work. God is always doing good for ourselves and those around us. And we have no other response to him always working than to always rejoice. It also means that we always are dependent on God, that there's never a moment when we are fine in and of ourselves to take care of our own lives. We are always dependent on him, so we are always praying to him. And then God, as we said, is doing so much that is good. So every good thing that we have is from him and him alone. So our reaction to that, and the only possible reaction to that, is always giving thanks to him. Now, there's a way that we might hear this, that we're just supposed to put on uh, this facade and pretend things are going okay and just constantly be rejoicing and praying and giving thanks regardless of what's going on around us. This is why I love this quote from this commentator, Gordon Fee, that I read. Uh, he says this on the back page. Uh, he says, this is not a sugar-coated call for putting on a happy face in the midst of difficulties. Here's a church, the Thessalonians. Here's a church that is undergoing severe hardship because of its faith in Christ. God's will for such a community, both as individuals and as they gather for worship, is that a matter of first importance, they continue to exalt Christ by rejoicing, by praying, by giving thanks, 
with him as the focus. So it's not ignoring the difficulties that are going along. It's not just pretending everything is okay so we can rejoice and pray and give thanks. No, no, it's precisely because of the difficulties of life that are certain for us that we do these three things. It's not smiling and pretending that nothing is going on around us, but as we see the pain and brokenness of this world, we recognize that there is more to it than this. We recognize that God is working even in the midst of this. We recognize that we need him more and more. We recognize that the good things that we have, we cling to all the more because of what's broken around us. And the reactions to that, that shift of perspective, only comes to the conclusion of rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. As we focus on him, rather than focusing on the brokenness of the world, not ignoring it, it is there, but looking through it to see the glorious person and work of our God, we see that there is only the reaction of praying, rejoicing, giving thanks inside of that. We continue to grow in relating to God by focusing on him and by learning from him. And we see this starting in verse 19. 19, yes. Do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So it says, do not quench the spirit. And let me try to explain that with this. So imagine that you are at a beach or in the woods somewhere, or even just in a backyard, experiencing one of God's good graces for us, a fire pit. Uh, And as we are concluding our time that has just been so good and restful for us, I don't know if you could pick it up, I like being around a fire pit. Uh, As we are concluding our time there, we need to extinguish the flames, right? Otherwise, it we could burn some things down and that would not be as restful. Uh, So we need to extinguish the flames. We douse it with water, throw sand on it, like deprive it of oxygen. Maybe you have cooler ways than that to do it. But we extinguish the flames. We are quenching the fire. And it's important to see this language because the Spirit is often talked about using the language of fire. At Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came to all Christians, it is described as if there was a fire had appeared to them. And so the Spirit is given to all Christians to shape and to guide us, to help us in difficult circumstances to know what God is calling us to do, to make us be more and more formed, to live the Christian life that's been given to us. So we don't want to quench that. We don't want to put that out. It is the life source of us. It is the help and support that we need to live the Christian life in a broken world. But the context here is about prophecies. And when we hear about that, it might start bringing up some uh, some thoughts in us. Maybe this is receiving some sort of divine, thus says the Lord statements. Uh, I hope you never hear me say that because I don't have that kind of authority to say, thus saith the Lord. But prophecies are used as God's revelation in the Old Testament and the New to share what God is doing to teach, to encourage, to warn, or instruct. So it's divine, it's God's revelation to teach, encourage, warn, or instruct. And we might have things that would be classified as prophecies or these teachings show up in our lives. There's been some times when someone's come up to me and it's like, you know, you just came to mind and I have this word of encouragement for you and it's been what I needed to hear. There's been other times where people might have a thought or a dream that God is using to prompt them in the right direction. 
Another way to think about prophecies is if you've ever been in a situation where uh, someone is talking about what uh, God said then so that we can understand what God is saying to us now, maybe walking through a book like 1 Thessalonians, if you've ever been in a situation like that, hypothetically, uh, that could be considered as that. It's God, it's revelation to teach, instruct, warn, or encourage. And so when we are faced with these things, we aren't supposed to just blindly accept them. The bulk of the content of this passage is what? Test everything. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from evil of every form, which is dump whatever is not good. Whatever would be evil because it's not aligning to what God says. So how is it that we test everything? Because people might come up and say, I have this word of encouragement for you, and it's actually not encouraging. It's, it's harmful. Or it doesn't align with what God is saying. So how do we test everything? I think there's two ways. We test everything by its content and its purpose. So by its content and its purpose. And so for content, uh, we actually have an advantage over the Thessalonians. Uh, we, we talked about how Paul, Silas, and Timothy were there talking to them directly. And there's a part of me that's jealous, like, oh, I wish I could be there to hear what is Paul teaching them directly. I wish I was doing that. I, I'm missing out on so much by not being there. And yet we are at a more enviable, enviable position than the Thessalonians because we have this. We have the complete revelation from God to us. We can go back to this and consult what has God said time and time again. They heard from Paul, and as soon as he was done speaking, they had only their memory to go off of. We are not left in such a way. We can constantly come back to what has God said so that we can test everything. What I'm hearing, does it align with what God has already said? So we test its content. We also test its purpose. And this is where it's helpful to go to some of Paul's other writings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's, he's talked about this situation. Verse 3, he says, On the other hand, the one who prophesies, so this is the very same word, the one who is doing this, uh, the one who prophesies speaks to people for what? No, for what? There's three things. I heard some murmuring. I'm assuming you guys said upbuilding, encouragement, consolations. Uh, the Downies were really good about it, at least. So they, they got the answers if you need help with it. Uh, so uh, upbuilding, encouragement, or consolation. This is the purpose of it. So if, if someone says something and it's not uh, encouraging people, if it's not helping uh, someone follow Jesus more and more, if it's not giving comfort and peace in the midst of a broken world, then it's not fitting the purpose of what it's supposed to do. So in all these things, we're supposed to test its content and its purpose to see, is it saying what God has already said and is it fulfilling the, uh, what God wants from his people? And we did something like this earlier, right? We tested something using the content and purpose of scripture. When we are looking at leaders, we said anyone who is not filling this work is actually not a leader. That is testing this in the same way that we're called to do. Is leadership fitting into the parameters given to us by Scripture? Is it fitting with the purpose of what God has given it to us? And if it isn't, we lose it. We hold to what is good, and we, and we discard anything that isn't. We must do both, because we do not want to quench the Spirit. We know God is constantly teaching His people, whether that is, is through uh, some encouragement from other people, through preaching, through books or podcasts, whatever we might be putting into our life to know and follow God more, 
We are called to test everything, but we do not want to lose the fact that God is continuing to work now. God is continuing to work in his people, to guide his people, to bring them closer to himself. And so we do not want to quench the spirits, but we also want to test everything. And so throughout this entire process, we see that God is still teaching his people. And a way that we build in relationship with him is by learning from him. And the last way is that we build in relationship with God is by praying to him. And we see a prayer and a request for prayer in verses 23 to 25. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 25, brothers and sisters, pray for us. So there is a prayer for the Thessalonians and then a request for prayer from the Thessalonians inside of this. And this is important because of what we've talked about already. Prayer demonstrates our absolute dependence on God. And here, I think, is our greatest encouragement for this entire passage. Thessalonians showed us this church that had an influence, and we want to be like that. So we want to live a life that is following after what Jesus calls us to, not to earn God's love, but precisely because we have so been shaped by God's love, do we live in this way, which impacts those around us. But there's still areas that we can continue to be growing, and we all need to continue to be growing, growing in understanding, growing in following after him, growing in uh, being blameless at holiness in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he does that. So we want to continue to follow more and more after him. But this can be where it gets discouraging. This can be where it gets hard. Because there are times, there are uh, periods of our life where it just feels like we're falling short. There's years even where it just feels like we're repeating the same cycle of doing well and then falling, doing well and then falling. There's entire sections of our lives where we're just wondering, are we doing this the right way at all? And it's just full of despair and hopelessness. Isn't it so good that we don't have an app on our phone that tells us how we're doing on this? Your faithfulness plummeted 48% this past week. We're not called to those results. We're not called to produce these in our lives. We're called to follow. We're called to live the life that's been shown to us. And we'll fall short of that. We will. But what we do is we pick ourselves back up. There's despair, there's hurt inside of that. We don't want to ignore that. But we pick right back off where we left. Or we take a few steps back and we continue from there. What we're called to do is faithfully pursue Jesus and the promise that's given to us. The results that we so try to produce for ourselves is actually done elsewhere. And we find that encouragement in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. How do we fill our lives until the coming of Jesus? We continue to be the church. We continue to create the relationships and build the relationships that we have with leaders, with each other, and with God. And in the times that we fall short, which is a guarantee for us, we recognize that we are just called to follow. And Jesus is working faithfully inside of us to make us the people that he will have us be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this series. It has been so encouraging to look at this church that you had be so influential thousands of years ago. And yet, what is incredible? They aren't meeting. We don't know them. 
and yet they're so influential for us as well. And if that isn't the source of your power, I don't know what is, that you can still use the lives of people thousands of years ago to spur on faith in uh, people that they will never have met. We are so grateful for you, that you give us the means to follow after you, that you give us the hope and faith and love that we need to get through this life. Help us to be that church of influence. Help us in all things to be seeking to grow in relationships with leaders, with each other, and to be growing in relationship with you, that we are constantly and in all things focusing on you, learning from you, and praying to you. For that is how we can fill our lives. That is how we can make it through this life until death or Jesus comes. It's you that we pray. Amen.